John chapter 9, um, start right off the bat in verse 1. Now, this is the story of a, a man born blind who received sight. Now, I know when I started looking into this chapter several days ago, the entire chapter is about this man. 41 verses about one healing of a man born blind. And I started thinking, maybe I'll do chapter 9 and 10 um, on Monday night because it doesn't seem like enough information for one study. Well, I'm hoping we can get through chapter 9 okay because uh, just every verse I read, I felt like I was typing in some notes for it. There's just a lot to go on. And I think, like I said, nine different places we're going to visit tonight to uh, support our text. Now, what I want to open with is this. This blind man that receives sight, I want you to just consider as we look through this chapter how different groups of people saw this man. You'll see the disciples will see him as a theological analysis because they're going to ask the famous question, who sinned, this man or his parents? So they see him as a case study in theology. The Pharisees will see this man as a tool that they can use to get at Jesus Christ, to get him arrested and eventually executed. And to the neighbors that are here, they just see him as a beggar. Think that's a beggar there. And then we'll see in verse 3, Jesus' opinion of him. So I want you to consider who you might have been, somebody that looks at the world and looks at people and you just kind of theologically analyze and or judge them. Or if you're a Pharisee and you may use this type of thing just to make your own points, never mind if it matches the word of God or not. Or um, do you just see a beggar? You don't see a person or a soul there. You just see somebody who you're glad you're not. Or do you see with a heart of compassion towards the needy? All right. So the great challenge of this miracle is that he was born blind. So in other words, Jesus isn't fixing some previous injury that he had. Jesus isn't um, uh, just uh, any kind of disease to heal here for blindness. This man, his eyes haven't worked ever. So this is going to be the opportunity for a divine encounter. But I also see as an opportunity to see where our fate lies. Our fate lies in the hands of Jesus Christ, as this man's did. So let's get into the text. Uh, first two verses read this way. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So this brings up a moral dilemma. Is suffering the result of sin? Now, on a macro scale, yes, you can look right at Adam and Eve and go, because they sinned, all suffering happens because of that sin. So on a macro level, certainly, sin is a result of suffering. But what about on a micro level, on an individual level? Well, let's do some case studies here. Job's friends. Job's friends believed that he was the worst sinner in the land because his suffering was so great. Job knew better. And God, in the end, revealed to him that it was not a matter of his sin. In fact, he was considered more righteous than any of them. Um, but sometimes it is the result of our sin. Take note of David and Bathsheba. Their firstborn had to die because of David and Bathsheba's adulterous affair. 
And but even when suffering there is a result of sin, we also see that uh, there's a redemptive quality to it. Because when you read about the death of David and Bathsheba's son that was due to David's sin, I want you to consider this. God was pointing us to a greater truth. Because when we see that David's son had to die for David's sin, it's pointing us to the fact that the one that will be identified as the son of David some 800 years or about 1,000 years later will also have to die for David's sin, as he will have to die for my sin and your sin. So the seven-day-old child that had to die for David's sin turned out to be a type of Jesus Christ for us. So we learn about Jesus Christ through that seven-day-old in a wonderful way. All right, how about Miriam, Moses' sister? She opposed the marriage of Moses to a, to a um, an African woman. And God turned her hand leprous. And um, that was her leprous hand was a direct result of her sin. And uh, Moses intervened. This is in Numbers chapter 12. Moses intervened for her through prayer. And she was restored to her total health again. So sometimes it is a result of sin. Sometimes it's not. So what are we to learn from that? Well, there is a great, great exposition given by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12. This will be our first um, off-road verse uh, that we're going to cover. Hebrews 3. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 3, we hear about the discipline of God, how he disciplines uh, for sin. And it starts by saying, For consider him, him being Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So when you feel like you're being unfairly treated, the Bible points you to Jesus to say, Consider him and how he went through that. He says, you have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin, and you've forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as sons, which is this. My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are, are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So the key things to remember there is the scourging and the rebuking are for sons that he loves. So the commentary that the author of Hebrews gives us, starting in verse 7, says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect for it. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, being God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but rather painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So that's the key right there. God's discipline is a training mechanism to have us grow into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So we should not um, shy away from the chastening of the Lord. Now, <clears throat> we're to respond to it as a son. You'd want a son to respond to his own dad, his own father. Okay. Um, back to John. 
and pick it up in verse 3. But Jesus answered, okay, the question is, who sinned, this man or his parents, if he's born blind? Jesus answered, neither. So there goes the moral dilemma. This one's not a matter of sin. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Okay, now this has brought up a debate for centuries. It sounds like God had this man be born blind just so on this day he could heal him and receive glory. And that makes you feel sorry for this man. that He had to endure decades of blindness just to glorify God in this moment. Now, I would say this. The spiritually mature would say that's still worth it. But not everybody's that spiritually mature. But here's what I want you to know. It says, who sin, neither this man nor his parents sin. And then it says, but that the works of God should be revealed. The word but that is one word in Greek, and it's the word hina, H-I-N-A, hina. And that tells us that it's not, sit, uh, his blindness is not the occasion for God giving, getting glory, but rather it's, I'm sorry, it's not the result of. So hina doesn't mean the result of his blindness is that God will get glory. It's the, the blindness provides an occasion for God to receive glory. So it solves the ethical dilemma of this because it's saying he wasn't born blind just so God could wait till this day to receive glory. It says God's going to use this occasion of his blindness that happened to be from birth to receive glory. So God is going to um, take advantage of a situation that uh, happens to all of us. Uh, we, we know people born with all sorts of impairments or they receive them sometime during their lifetime. And it's not necessarily the result of uh, God saying, hey, you're going to suffer so that I get glory. But there's an occasion for him to receive glory through our suffering. So the word hina lets us know that God didn't just say he's going to suffer for decades for this day. But God's going to take advantage of the occasion on this moment to indeed receive glory from him. So that's verse three. Verse four, in other words, let me put this, put it this way. What if God did indeed have this man be born blind for this very day? Then I believe it would be a Romans 8.18 situation that Paul, who suffered more than anybody we know, Paul, whether it's beatings, imprisonments, uh, being beaten with the purpose of killing him and him surviving that, whether it's five times being last 39 times, or whether it's stoning and leaving him for dead, whatever the case may be, all the imprisonments. He said this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So Paul had a strong understanding of suffering and the weight and the amount of suffering that goes on in this world and of the glory that's going to be revealed in us one day. And he said, it's not worth comparing. The glory is so great that you wouldn't even mention the suffering uh, if you knew about the glory. So I want you to think about that when we deal with our cancers or our coronaviruses or our car accidents and all of these things that, that happen in our lives, that there is a glory that makes our worst tragedies not worthy of comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in us. Okay. Verse 4. Jesus continuing says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. 
So it's certainly true in Jesus' day that nighttime would cease work because they didn't have electricity, they didn't have lights like that. So certainly nighttime hindered their work. But this seems to also be speaking prophetically of Jesus' work on the cross. Why? Because we're going to talk about Sabbath rest a little bit later. And if you tune into the Hebrews class the last, last Tuesday and, and this Tuesday, you'll see we're talking a lot about the, the rest that God has promised us. Now, in Mark 15, when Jesus finishes his work, it says this. Now, when the sixth hour had come, the sixth hour is noon. This is Mark 15, 33. It says, when the sixth hour has come, that's high noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon until three o'clock, darkness comes over the whole land. And then when that ninth hour came, Jesus cries out the very famous, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Which happens shortly before he gives up his last breath and dies. And that's when the works of Jesus are finished. He'll cry out, it is finished. And when that happens, the darkness leaves the land at the ninth hour and the sun comes back out again. So here in John 9, Jesus says, we must work the works of God while it is day, because when night comes, the work stops. And then that gets fulfilled on the cross. Nighttime happens at the completion of his work of salvation, where he shouts out that it is finished. All right. Uh, verse 5, moving forward. Jesus still doing the speaking. He says, I, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now it's interesting how Jesus does this. It's often talked about how he does this. And um, one thing I want to point out at the get-go is Jesus designed this healing so that this man would not ever see who healed him. So Jesus, at other, with other blind people, they just see. And they're, the first thing they see is the face of Christ. This man is sent away with clay on his eyes to travel blindly to the pool of Siloam to wash and then receive his sight. And certainly when he sees, Jesus is not around. So he never sees who heals him, as far as that goes. Now, in scholarly talk or in theological terms, this is called a immediate miracle versus an immediate miracle. Immediate miracle, M-E-D-I-A-T-E, -E, means there's something mediating between Jesus and the healing. In this case, it's the clay. He's using something to heal. Um, God uses immediate things to do miracles on several occasions. Think of how he drove back the Red Sea. He used, as a mediator, the wind. So he didn't just have it split, the Red Sea split without wind coming and blowing it back. He uses the wind to mediate the miracle of the Red Sea. Here, Jesus uses clay to achieve his miracles, which he doesn't always do. This is opposed to immediate miracles. Immediate means there's no mediator between God, in this case Jesus, and the miracle. Think of Jesus turning water to wine. He didn't use any chemicals in the water. He didn't put anything in the water. 
He simply changed the water to wine, and it changed immediately. Okay, so that's where we get our word immediately from. There's nothing in between the miracle worker and the miracle, like the water to wine, and most of his healings. There's nothing in between him and the healing. Think of uh, the, the centurion who said, You're not even worth, I'm not even worthy that you come under my roof. And just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus says the word from a distance. He's not even near him. And he's healed. That's immediate. All right. So um, here Jesus uses mediation. Now, everybody has like different ideas about why Jesus used this clay to do this. Um, I think less of the clay and more of the saliva. There's no magical properties in the saliva that I know of, but sometimes I wonder, and that's the most I can say about this, is sometimes I wonder if Jesus has his suffering in mind when he heals people. Because sometimes he heals in a way that makes you scratch your head, and this is certainly one of those times. And when I see that, this man is blinded, he can't see anything, and he gets the spit and mixed in with the clay, and it's rubbed on his eyes um, before he can see. I wonder if Jesus is thinking that Maybe. he knows there's coming a time when he'll be spat upon. He'll have somebody's saliva put on his eyes. His face will be spat upon, and before they do that, they blindfold him. So he's made blind, and he receives the saliva. So... The book of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. So how does he endure the sufferings of the cross? Well, it's for the joy set before him. And I think it's right that most people teach that we are the joy set before him. We helped him endure the cross because of his great love for us. But I think there might be something to the fact that he might be thinking of people he healed when he encounters things like the spinning. When he's blinded and he's spat upon, he can remember the joy of this man when he spat on this man and the man came back seeing. So um, it's just part of the romance and the poetry that I see in these scriptural stories time and time again. But outside of that, uh, I haven't heard anybody teach that or support that. So so maybe, I'm, maybe I shouldn't either, but uh, I see something in that. But anyways, uh, other people think this, that Jesus is simply showing this man that he's a creature and Jesus is the creator. And he's going to make this man a new creation by making him new through the dust of the earth again. Just like God made man from the dust of the earth, he's going to use the dust of the earth now on his eyes to make him new. So it's not just that he'll have physical eyesight, he'll obtain spiritual eyesight and new life in Jesus Christ through this healing. And that's why some people think to use the clay. Now, um, verse 8. Therefore the neighbors, and we talked about them, therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is, this, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he's like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes open? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received 
sight. Now, Jesus said to this man, go and do. And the man went and did. And this is why he can see. And the same is true for us. Think of uh, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. There's a go and a do. It's not enough just to go. We also have to do. Uh, it reminds me of this story in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, uh, which I think is Jesus teaching specifically about the dynamic of going and doing. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 28. Matthew 21, starting in verse 28. We read this. Jesus says, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go and work today in my vineyard. So there's the go and do. Go and work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterwards, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second son and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two sons did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. And Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe in him. In other words, the sinner's repentance, the harlots and the tax collectors' repentance served as an opportunity for the Pharisees to repent. When they see these people that they downgrade and disregard repenting, that's an opportunity for them to take take account of their own soul and repent. So uh, one said, I will not go, but he did. The other said, I will go, but he didn't. So more important than the going was the doing. So Jesus is saying the one who did is the one who was righteous, the one that did his father's will, and who actually did. All right. So you are probably very familiar with the verse. It's not the hearers of the word that are blessed, but it's the doers who are blessed. So we got to be doers. Now, in case you feel like asking me, is this doing a part of our salvation? The answer is, I want to say yes, but I've got to be careful because I'm not teaching you work salvation. You're saved by grace through faith alone. But it's doing always accompanies God's work of salvation in your life. And you can look up Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 if you want to verify that. All right. All right. Verse 12. John's Gospel. Chapter 9, here we go. Verse 12. Then they said to him, where is he? They're asking the blind man, where is Jesus? He said, I don't know. Then they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath. There we go. Now you know the conflict's coming. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Okay, now, he put clay on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Now, what I want us to get out of that is this. It's very difficult to argue with somebody's eyewitness testimony. 
I witnessed testimonies what every courtroom in the land is looking for when they make a decision about somebody's guilt and innocence. It's almost always based primarily upon eyewitness testimony. So the Pharisees are questioning this man who now can see. And here's the man's testimony. Clay was put on my eyes. I'm not talking about somebody else. I'm not giving you a secondhand story or a thirdhand story. This is not hearsay. He opened he put clay on my eyes. I wash. I see. Should be the end of the conversation if your heart is right. But we're dealing with people whose hearts are not right. And as you're thinking about like people you work with whose hearts are not right, what you need to instead consider is, are they thinking of you in this situation? We always got to look at ourselves first before we look at other people. So he put clay on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Now, we're in John chapter 9. So here's a quick review of the first eight chapters of John's gospel. Because it's all about eyewitness testimony. It's all about that our faith is based upon people that have heard and seen this stuff. This is not hypothetical assumptions based on somebody's teaching. This is based on the lives that were impacted directly, those that were there and heard and saw. So here's your quick summary about eyewitness testimony. John 1, Nathaniel, and Jesus talks to him and tells him that he's a true Israelite indeed to whom there's no deceit. Nathaniel knows that's miraculous. And he says, how do you know me? How do you know me? So here's Nathaniel admitting, this man knows stuff about me that nobody could possibly know, and I want to know how. Okay? So that so Nathaniel has that ear witness and eyewitness testimony. John chapter 2, Jesus turns water to wine. And it says the master of the banquet didn't know that that used to be water. And then it says this, but the servants knew. The servants knew. I love that. God is always blessing servanthood, isn't he? The servants were the first people on planet Earth to know that Jesus Christ worked a miracle because they were faithful to go and to do. When Mary said, do whatever he tells you, they went and they did, and they became the first people on planet Earth to ever know that Jesus had miraculous power by observing a miracle. The servants knew. I witnessed testimony. John chapter 3, the very next chapter, Nicodemus introduces himself to Jesus Christ by saying this, we know that you're from God because all the miracles that you're doing. So he's testifying that I know who you are because of your miracles. It's more eyewitness testimony. John 4, the Samaritan woman will say to her um, people in the village, come meet a man who told me all I ever did. How could this stranger I just met today tell me all about me? It's eyewitness testimony. John 5, the next chapter, at the pool of Bethesda, the man departed and told the news that it was Jesus who made him well. So this man was paralyzed for 38 years, and now he's walking around telling the story of Jesus Christ made him well. Eyewitness testimony, John 6, verse 2. Then a great multitude followed Jesus because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. They saw him do this stuff. John 6 again, verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, which was feeding the 5,000, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And they'll say, but he, he's not a prophet. He's more than a prophet. So to talk about when God told Moses, I'll make a prophet like you, prophesying about Jesus Christ. They're saying, this is him. John 7, verse 31. And many people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? 
So we see all the miracles he's doing. He's saying, he ain't the Christ. Do you think somebody else can do more than this man does? We've seen with our own eyes all the things that he's done. John chapter 8, last chapter, verse 18. Jesus Christ said, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So he's saying, even God the Father is serving as an eyewitness to who Jesus is. This was at his baptism when God the Father said, this is my son whom I love. And it's also the Mount of Transfiguration when God said to Peter, James, and John, this is my son, listen to him. So they now we have ear witness testimony from the very voice of the Father. And that makes this author of this gospel, the Apostle John, when he writes 1 John, he's able to say this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, that life was manifested and we have seen and we bear witness and we declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. How can your joy not be full when you understand that you believe based on solid eyewitness testimony of many, many people who were willing to pay great, great prices for their testimonies, um, proving the authenticity of the testimony? It is difficult to argue with eyewitness testimony. Okay? And that's what Christianity is made up of way above and beyond any other religion of the world. That's where we can rest our security. Verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, they're saying because he doesn't keep the Sabbath, he can't be from God. Now, they're accusing him of sin here. They see in one of the commandments it says to keep the Sabbath. Jesus was a Sabbath keeper. If you remember way back, I said the Pharisees created 39 interpretations of the Sabbath, how to follow the Sabbath law. And this is one of those 39 interpretations of the Pharisees. That is man's idea of how to follow the Sabbath, which was not to do good on the Sabbath, not to heal on the Sabbath. When Jesus heals on the Sabbath, he's breaking a man-made law, not a law of God's. Now, Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17 say this about the Sabbath, if you're wondering about Sabbath keeping today. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Now, the original manuscript says a Sabbath. Some of the translations like mine say or Sabbaths, but no real difference there. Now, here's the key to understand why we don't have to keep the Sabbath now. Says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. All right, so this is saying that uh, that Sabbath keeping was a shadow of things to come, but the reality or the substance of that shadow is Christ. So, what is more important, the shadow or the reality? Of course, it's the reality. Christ is the reality of the Sabbath. Now, that's easy to understand, except the argument will come, 
But that's one of the Ten Commandments. So what about the other nine commandments? Were those just shadows of things to come? I would say no, they're not. If you look carefully at the Ten Commandments, um, they all deal with our morality. Okay, uh, It's immoral. In fact, it's considered the greatest of sins to have some other God that's not the true God. So there's the first one. And because he doesn't have uh, human form or animal form, we're not to make any image of him. Um, that would be an idol. We're not to use his name in vain. He's holy. Then there's the Sabbath keeping. Now, why is that different? Because we learn in the New Testament that the Sabbath was a shadow of a reality, the shadow of a reality. So um, let me see if I can give you a little bit more on that. One second here. I will in just a moment. I want to go uh, a little bit further before I get into it. Um, but Paul says, do not judge anyone regarding a Sabbath. That means you can keep it, and we're not to get on people that do, or we cannot keep it, because Christ is the fulfillment. He's the eternal rest that we're to enter into. So what we don't want to do is ignore Christ's accomplishments on our behalf, that we enter into the rest of God through him by saying, I have to enter his rest through Sabbath keeping. So the, the point he'll make in the book of Hebrews is, um, they were to enter into the promised land through Joshua to enter into their rest. And the writer of Hebrews says if they really entered into their rest, when Joshua brought them to the promised land, then the millions of Jews that died in the wilderness wouldn't have died. But Joshua did not achieve rest for the people of God. So therefore, there's another rest that we're to enter into. And that rest is sh uh, the shadow of it was the Sabbath keeping. The reality is in Jesus Christ. Now. I think I'm going to bring that up later if I remember correctly. All right, so I believe we are on first. Um, uh, we're in the middle of verse 16 here. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. All right, so I want you to remember this question. How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Because their belief was God does not listen to sinners. And only God can empower him to heal this blind man. So if he's not from God, how did he heal the blind man? And if he's not following the Sabbath, then he's a sinner. So how can he both be a sinner and a healer? That's the confusion of the moment here. All right, so verse... It says, uh, verse, at the end of verse 16 says, there's a division among them. That's what I just explained. Verse 17. Then they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. Now notice, guys, listen. You see this in politics all the time. A point is made, but because you don't want to receive the point, because it makes you wrong, when you receive the point, you ignore the point. That is not how to argue. You must take in all points on all sides if you're going to have any wisdom and rationality in any matter. So I refer you back to verse 15. The, the blind man said to them, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And then in verse 17, they say, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight, even though he told them, it's been my eyes, I washed, and I see. So they don't believe him that he received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. Now, I understand this because when I feel like I'm being lied to, I very often call the parents. So 
that's what they're doing. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son. Okay, so we know that this is our son, and we know that he's born blind. We know those two things. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he'll speak for himself. Now, these Pharisees are killing the joy of parents who dealt with a blind child through his whole entire childhood, and now he has sight. And the joy is gone because of these Pharisees. Now, to understand why they're kind of dodging the question, you're going to find out in a minute that the Pharisees already announced to all the Jewish people that if you say Jesus is the Christ that we've been waiting for, you're excommunicated. You're out of the church. So they're in this dilemma that's killing their joy. Because you got to remember, their synagogue was not just where they went on Saturday to worship. All of their social life during the week was built around the synagogue. Everything they had to do publicly, the synagogue was the center of that. I wish that was true of our churches today. That's why I love Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, and most of our campuses, because we can make our church a large part of our social lives. There's so much they give us to do, and don't take that for granted. That's a huge blessing. Now, so afraid of excommunication from the synagogue, they say, Ask him, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anybody confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now, this the rash and emotionally charged edict to excommunicate anybody who confessed that Jesus was the Christ put Jewish leadership into a corner. They put him in a box. They did this to themselves. They have the man's testimony, and now they have the parent's testimony that verifies the man's testimony, that he was indeed born blind, that he does indeed now see. This is overwhelming evidence, yet they are still in the box of their own making. Now, because of this rash promise they made, now, I'm going to do a bit of a sidebar. I'm not going to go too far off topic. But I think it's important that we talk about these rash vows or rash promises that put these Pharisees in a corner. They kind of have to kick these people out of the synagogue now, even though there's overwhelming evidence of the truth. And if they just receive the truth, everybody's going to have a great, great day today. But instead, they're giving the blind man a hard time, his parents a hard time. And they're going to be excommunicated, but the man is going to be excommunicated because he received sight instead of his Jesus. So, why can't the Pharisees bend? Why can't they see? Well, one of the reasons is they made a rash edict, a rash vow, that if you say he's the Christ, you're out. And they're going to lose face if they go against that. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2 says, Do not be rash with your mouth. And let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In other words, what can you ever really say as an earthling when God is sitting up in heaven with all knowledge? You better hope what you're saying matches the word of God, because um, he's in heaven. He knows all. He sees all. And we have to hope that our lives and our words match what he says. 
The Pharisees did something rash, and now they're in a box where they got to kick out a man who's supposed to be having the greatest day of his life today. But he's going to be socially excommunicated and religiously excommunicated because he simply said, you asked me who did it, and I said it was Jesus. Now, I want to bring you, this is the apologist in me, one of the most attacked areas of scripture is Judges chapter 11. And it's so misunderstood. And so I feel the desire to clarify this with all of you tonight. Whenever you talk about rash vows or rash edicts in the Bible, everybody brings up Judges 11 about Jephthah's vow to God. This is when he vows, if you give me victory, Lord, over the enemy, the very first thing I see when I come home, I will offer it to you. And the first thing he sees is his daughter. And everybody thinks he therefore killed his daughter. I want to tell you that that's not likely at all what happened. I don't know if you guys know the story or not, but if you go to Judges 11, uh, you'll see atheists attack this as God being ridiculous and cruel, and it's misrepresented, I think, tremendously. So I'm going to start in Judges 11, uh, starting in verse 29, and I'm going to go all the way to 40. So we're going to spend some time in Judges 11 here. Says then, remember what I'm getting at are rash vows, and this is the rashest vow in the Bible. It's always the first one that people bring up when they talk about rash vows. So it says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, he's one of the judges of Israel, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mitzvah of Gilead. And from Mitzvah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon surely shall be the Lord's and, okay, that's just a bob, that's just a letter, it's one letter word, it's a bob, like our, like our J or our Y. And he says, bob, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. And the reason why I tell you the Hebrew letter, that's the word and, because it's the same word for the word or. It can be interpreted and or or. As a conjunctive, it's and, but if it's meant as a disjunctive, it's the word or. So you can see, it could just as easily say that when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall, whatever meets me shall surely be the Lord's. So that, that person or thing will be devoted to the Lord, or I'll offer it up as a birth offering. I'll do one or the other. Now let's look at the evidence for which one he did. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Arir as far as Minnith, 20 cities, and to Abel Karamin with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mitzvah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. So this is what the author wants you to know. This man has no son, and this is his only daughter, meaning his name will not carry on in Israel, and that's a real big deal. But if she marries and has children, at least part of his family, even though it won't be his name, will carry on in Israel. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I've given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. And then obviously he explains to her what the promise was. 
uh, verse 36. So she said to him, my father, if you've given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged your enemies, the people of Ammon. So she very easily and very readily accepts uh, obeying the vow to the Lord. So let's see what that vow might have been. Then she said to her father, let this, this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. Now, she's going to be offered up as a burnt offering. First know this, God has the Israelites attack other nations, and one of the things he brings up as abominable is their child sacrifice. So certainly God is not wanting a child sacrifice here. But is that even what Jephthah is, going, is thinking of doing? Of course, I say no. So uh, now what is on her mind? Her virginity. That's a weird thing to be concerned about when you're going to the death chamber. Um, if, if a woman is sentenced to death by a court and she's a virgin, it's not likely she's going to bewail her virginity at that time. Okay, She's going to bewail her death, obviously. So it would be very odd for her to bewail her virginity when she has a death sentence over her head. 38, so he said, go, and he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with which she had vowed. So he does what he said he would do. He follows through on the vow, and then what's the next four words? She knew no man. And it's not an epitaph of death. That's an epitaph of being offered to the Lord um, purely. So many of their women that served in ministry in the temple took vows of purity to serve without ever knowing a man. So and then it says it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Now some say, well, if they're lamenting her every year, it must mean her death. No, because uh, the word that, that you see in italics there, is not in the original. That's why it's in italics. It's just a lamed, which is another Hebrew um, uh, letter that stands for a word. And it, it means that it hints at that they only did this while she was alive. So while she's alive, um, they went four days each year to lament her virginity. Okay? So uh, if they're only doing it while she's alive, then it's a silly thing to say if she's not going to be alive anymore. So the overwhelming evidence, okay, the majority evidence of that rash vow, so it's still a rash vow to make and still cost him the family plans for his daughter and his daughter's ideal idea of life of being a mom, but uh, it's certainly not sacrificing her, and we should not think that God would approve of a child sacrifice uh, like that, or a judge of God, somebody who's known with the Spirit of the Lord upon him, that he would literally burn his daughter to death there. All right. So hopefully that was helpful, because it was a bit off topic of John 9, except for in John 9, a rash vow was made that the Pharisees will have to kick this poor man out of synagogue on the greatest day of his life. Verse 24. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. Now you can see the cost you have to pay for not acknowledging Jesus as God. Here's what they do in one line here. Give God the glory. 
And Jesus is probably like, hey, they're getting it. They should be giving me glory now. And then they point at him and say, this man is a sinner. So they're stuck with a confession because they don't recognize Jesus as God, that they both acknowledge God's deserving of glory, yet they call God on earth a sinner. Horrible, horrible thing. Verse 25. He answered and said, this is the blind man answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Now, this means that this man is great at the theological discipline of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is how we are disciplines on how we can find things out scripturally without violating scripture. So, what, why is he a good hermeneutic here? Why is he uh, operating in a good hermeneutic? Because he says, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. I've never met the man before. But here's something I do know. I was blind. Jesus came in my life, and now I see. So the hermeneutic that I want you to know about things that you don't know in the Bible is you always start with something that you do know. Start with something you do know and see if you can build up the things you do know to answer the best way you can the things that you don't know. Okay, that leads to a lot of deeper and broader and wider understandings of Scripture. Um, just don't immediately say, wow, I don't know the answer to that. Start with what you do know and try to build up to it. He's starting with what he does now. God doesn't listen to sinners, he's about to say. So I can't imagine he's a sinner because God doesn't, nobody can heal people like I've been healed unless God does it. So God obviously listens to this man. All right. Uh, verse 26. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he is from. This is where we go back to that idea of shadow and reality, shadow and substance. Because Moses made the tabernacle, and the tabernacle, the book of Hebrews says, was a shadow of heavenly things. So God told Moses, make the tabernacle exactly according to the pattern that I tell you. Do not stray from the exact description that I give you of how to make this tabernacle. Because we see now that everything in that tabernacle has a heavenly significance. It's pointing us to heaven with so many details that I'll get into uh, John chapter 20 later. Now, um, so now they're saying, hey, you're his disciple. Remember, Jesus is the substance of the reality. He says, but we are Moses' disciples. That's the shadow. Moses was the prophet of the shadows. Jesus is the reality. Moses was prophesying about the reality. You can only deal with the shadows of the tabernacle and the law and things like that. So they're bragging about, because they don't know what they're saying, they're bragging about being a, a disciple of the shadow giver, not of the reality giver. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly lit, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. He says, now we're limited as if looking through a mirror dimly lit. We can't see everything now, but then we'll see everything. Why now? Because now we're still in the shadow. 
when we get to be with Christ, then we'll be with the reality and we'll know all things and see all things just like we'll be known ourselves. Okay. Verse 30. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. Remember they accused, they said, this man's a sinner. Here's what this guy's saying. He's using their own argument against them. He says, uh, we know that God doesn't hear sinners. So he agrees with them there. He says, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God hears him. Since the world began, it's been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So I love that because he uses their own testimony against them, and he makes his point through it. See, logic works very well for Christianity. I love arguments from logic. Um, you can look up the cosmological argument, the argument from, from morality. You can look up Pascal's wager. These are all logical arguments that eliminate atheism and lift up Christianity. Verse 34. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And here's the excommunication that they put themselves in this box, that they have to respond this way because of their rash edict. It says, And they cast him out. That was really, really sad. But take note of this. He was only excommunicated from the visible church, not from the invisible church. The visible church is what you and I can see every time we go to church. The invisible church is only what God sees, and that's who are the true worshipers, the ones that are really saved sitting in the congregation. Not the ones that just come in the congregation, they leave before communion, and then they go and they live out of wedlock together, or they they just have sexual relations without any regards to what God has said about it, um, without changing at all from your supposed salvation. That's what St. Augustine said was the, the visible church, the invisible church who is who God sees that are really receiving his word and obeying his word and are being changed through his word. So this man was kicked out of the visible church but he certainly was not kicked out of God's invisible church. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? My version says Son of God. Many of your versions say Son of Man. I don't know which one's more likely right. I will say I think it's Son of Man. Why? Because their understanding of the Son of Man was that he would be the only righteous one, truly righteous one, to walk the earth. He would be the one without sin, is the promise of the Son of Man. And because they accused Jesus of being a sinner, this man says, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. I think Jesus says, now the right question to ask them is, does he believe in the Son of Man? Does he believe in a sinless, righteous one coming to the earth? Uh, verse 36, he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. I love when Jesus does that. That's goosebump moment. Um, the one that you've waited for, the one you've heard about, the one you've read about, the one that you heard would be sinless and totally righteous is the one who's actually talking to you right now. So then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So I think it's the Son of Man reference because... It has to do with the context of, is he a sinner or not? The Son of Man, they knew would not be a sinner. So therefore, um, 
Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe that I'm not a sinner? Is what he could be asking. And he says, yes, I believe that. So what does this man do when he confesses his belief? He does the always appropriate response he worships. Now, it's not just when you go from blind to seeing that you worship, something major like that. How about Job? At the announcement that he lost every one of his children, he worshiped. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we know him with that much trust. I honestly don't know, but I know we're supposed to. And I know he's that trustworthy. So the appropriate response always is indeed worship. Now, verse 39, let's finish this up. 39 to 41, and Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be blind. Now they know that the man who didn't see now sees. So the question is, who is it that see that will be made blind? That provokes this question from the Pharisees, verse 40. But some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin here. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. And I could not do justice to what just happened here. Like one of my uh, favorite authors, Merrill C. Tenney, he wrote this about what just happened there. The re he wrote this, the rhetorical question of the Pharisees, we are not blind also, are we? showed that they expected Jesus to exempt them from the condemnation of his previous utterance. His reply was devastating. If they really were blind and admitted the fact, their confession of it would lead to the removal of their sin. But their inability to discern their own failure, as evidenced by their complacent assumption of spiritual sight, aggravated the situation and made their sin all the more lasting. While the blind man gained physical and spiritual light through faith, the Pharisees lost the light that they had and lapsed into complete spiritual darkness. So there's a great inner working of physical sight and physical blindness that are pointing to spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. A blind man had the spiritual sight to hear and obey Jesus Christ to go and to do what Jesus Christ said to do. You don't need physical eyesight to do that. You need spiritual sight to do that. The Pharisees have 20-20 physical vision, but they have no spiritual light, no spiritual sight, and Jesus calls them blind. And instead of acknowledging their sin, they say, we're not blind, like you say. And Jesus said, well, if you would have confessed that you were blind, you would have been fine. But since you claim to have sight and you reject me, your sin remains. Now, the power of this man's story is representative of our spiritual condition that has been forever memorialized by one of Christianity's greatest hymns, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. John 9, I was blind, but now I see. This man from John 9 is quoted in the prime hymn of Christian tradition. What an honor uh, this man is given. 
Let's pray. Father, we gather in your name with our word open because you have the words of eternal life and your beauty and your grace and your mercy are found within these pages. And Lord, I pray that everybody within the sound of my voice would be fervent readers of your word, Lord. Daily, they would go at your word with high expectation, Lord, seeking and groping after you all they got, Lord, so they would find you in new and heartwarming ways every day. Lord, not because we're deserving, but because you're merciful, we pray for blessings upon us that we may in turn glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.